how many of you guys, did anybody uh, uh, guess my age, what I'm turning today? They might guess that. 33, close. I haven't heard the correct one yet, so. 43 is correct. Man, that sounds old. Dang, 43. Um, so I never, I started working with high school students when I was 19. And I've been doing it ever since, except for like the two years that, um, that uh, I actually really enjoyed this, believe it or not. But uh, when I came on staff here at TBC, I started working as the junior high pastor first. Did that for about two and a half years. So subtract that. That's over 20 years. Since I was 19, I'm 43, working with high school students. So this has been like the longest senior year ever for me, all right? Um, but I've really enjoyed it. And honestly, I never thought that I would um, – I mean, I, I, I had the idea that I would do this for a long time. But, um, but when you're a youth pastor, people start asking questions like, so what do you want to do with your life? I'm like, I'm already doing it, you know? And uh, but they'll ask questions about like, yeah, but which I think is not a fair question, because, listen, no one goes and asks a high school teacher at a high school, like, when do you want to get a real job? Right. Like no one does that with a high school teacher. But for some reason, youth pastors kind of always get that question, you know. And so I'm like, this is my real job. And so um, but love working with you all. And honestly, I missed the last two weeks. Being up in the main service was fun and all that. But um, I really miss being, being down here. So. Um, I love that I get to be here with you this morning. Uh, so is um, we're starting a new series today in the book of Jonah. And I don't see him here. Is Jonah Jimenez here today? I don't see him. He is here. Because my first joke, my first joke was about kind of the, this thing. So the, the, name, the name Jonah means dove. Do you see where this is going? So a way to remember that is that's probably the brand of like shampoo that Jonah uses on his hair. So that wasn't very good, I know, but I, and he's on the front row, so like I, it was like primed for that that to happen. Um, but now you will not forget it. You will not forget the name of what the name Jonah means at all, even though it was a dumb joke. Like you, it's ingrained in your. Usually stupid gets ingrained into your memory, so um, that's what happened there. So many of you all know the story of Jonah, um, but if you don't, um, he is told by God to go preach to a wicked city called what? Nineveh. But instead, what does he do? He runs, right? He hops on a ship, and he ends up overboard. He gets swallowed by a big fish and survives in the belly of the fish for three days and then goes on to preach to the Ninevites. Now, when you're a kid hearing this story, it might make sense when you're a kid because a lot of the stories in the Bible you just think of as like, this is what your parents are telling you, so you think of it as reality and truth. But when you enter high school and college, you start to get skeptical. You start to get jaded and cynical and start to distrust things that are in the Bible. And I understand why many of you would think that. But some people deal with their skepticism with the book of Jonah by just saying it's just an allegory and didn't happen literally. And I would say, if you're in that category, if you're a skeptic, I would say that I don't think we have to do that with this story, and here's why. Because if you accept the existence of God and the resurrection of Christ, there's nothing difficult about accepting the Jonah story. It makes no sense to say, I believe in a God who came to earth as a baby, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, resurrected, 
and ascended. I believe all that, but the Jonah story, I, I just, that just can't be true. So if, if we believe in the resurrection, then you can, you can believe in the other miracles in the Bible. I think what happens is we feel the pressure from our culture to explain away certain things in the Bible that do seem fantastic and seem miraculous. But I would also ask you this question. If there really is a God that we say we believe in, wouldn't you expect the miraculous to happen? If you turn around and, and you never expect miraculous to happen, well, that's a whole other side of the coin, right? You've you got to ask yourself the question, why would I believe in a transcendent God but then not expect the miraculous to ever happen? So I think we don't have to do that with this story like many skeptics would do. So if you're a skeptic, your skepticism is still based on some beliefs that can't be proven. And so I think our, our skepticism is still based on some elements of faith. So some people have called Jonah the worst prophet ever. Like we could have titled this, this series like Jonah, the worst prophet ever. And that would have been an accurate title for this whole series. Because he wasn't, he wasn't obedient. He hated the people he was going to go preach to. Imagine if that were true of me, if I hated high school students. I mean, some of you probably wonder about that. But that's, listen. Um, but imagine if, if I literally hated high school, but I'm called to teach high schoolers or whatever demographic you're called to go to. Like, you just hate these people. And this is, Jonah hated the Ninevites, and many Jewish people would have hated them as well. So why would God ask someone to preach to people that they hate? Why would God do that? Because here's the issue. God... Jonah wants a God who destroys the bad people but blesses the good people. Jonah wants a God. Jonah wants a God of his own imagination. He wants an imaginary God, one that he's made up in his mind. So throughout the book, uh, he sees that God is not how he imagines God to be, and that makes Jonah very angry. And you'll see it play out in this these coming weeks. The main issue for Jonah is, is how can God be a merciful God, but also be a just God? How can he show mercy to the wicked people, like the Ninevites, but also be a just God? How can, and so Jonah can't make sense of those two contradictory things. How can God be a God of mercy, but also be a just God at the same time? And I think you and I do the exact same thing. When God is not how we imagine him to be, we get angry with him, just like Jonah did. So when has, in your life, when has the God of your imagination come into conflict with the real God? Or the God that you hear talked about or preached about? I think of my, um, I currently have an uncle that is uh, dying of lung cancer in Virginia. And he is someone who has lived his life in rebellion against the things that he was taught growing up. So yeah, raising the church and all of that, but just has never bought into it, would not call himself a Christian, would not call himself a believer. And his life has just been on this destructive pathway since he was a teenager, and it just has never veered off of that path. And my mom has talked with him numerous times and tried to witness them and share Christ with him. He wants nothing to do with it. And he will often say things like, you know, you don't know what happened to me at the church we went to. And I don't know the details, 
But he has this in his mind. He cannot reconcile how there is this God that we talk about, and there's but there's also this other God that he he depicts in his own imagination, and he can't make sense of those things, and so he's rejected the entire thing. And apart from God intervening in his life, um, he's going to die of cancer in the next few weeks or months. And so I ask you to pray for him as he um, just continues to have a chance to turn to Christ, I hope, in his last weeks or months. But maybe for you, it's questions like, how can God be good when my family is in disarray? Or how can I trust God when I can't even trust people? Or how can I believe what God says about sexuality when I'm having all these struggles? And so for many of us in the room, there is this conflict in your own mind about the the God of your imagination, but also the real God that you hear talked about at church and Bible studies, and the two don't make sense to you, and so you just think, I I can't make sense of this. I'm just going to, I don't know. And so you start to pull away. At some point, the God of your imagination or how God is supposed to be in your mind will conflict with the real God. And whichever God wins that battle is going to set the course for your entire life. So as you read the story of Jonah, you're going to see some weird, some interesting connections with the prodigal son story of Luke chapter, uh, in Luke chapter 15. In Luke 15, there's this younger son, you may know the story, who runs from the father in rebellion, and then there's an older son who stays home and he obeys. There's like the rebellious son and then the good son, at least on the outside. But remember at the end of the story, the older son gets, gets what? He gets, he gets angry, right, at the father. So which of these two brothers is Jonah most like? Well, he's actually like both. We're going to see in this whole book how Jonah is like the older son and the younger son at different points in the story. He starts out like the younger son, running from God. But then later he's like the older son, getting angry at God because God shows mercy to the Ninevites. And the father shows mercy to the younger son. And so the older son gets angry in Luke 15. So Jonah Jonah was this obedient rebel. At first he rebelled and he ran and then he obeyed and he went. But he went kicking and screaming and he went he went to Nineveh angry. He was angry at God and angry at the Ninevites. He obeyed on the outside, but in his heart he still rebelled. So even, even though he was obeying externally, in his heart he was rebelling against God even as he went. And he was angry at God. So look with me at Jonah chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. You may have to go to your table of contents for this one. It's hard to find sometimes, these small books, Old Testament. But Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish in the presence of the Lord. What do we know about Jonah apart from this book? Well, really not a whole lot. We do know it was shocking. There's a few things about this story that are really shocking. One, it was shocking for a Jew to be called to preach to a Gentile city. No prophet had ever gone 
and been called to go to a people like this. There were some prophets that would that wrote about other nations, like Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Amos, but they never went to those places. They just wrote about them. So it was shocking that God would warn Nineveh. This was the capital of the Assyrian Empire because the Ninevites were known as some of the most wicked people. And here's where this all is taking place. This is a map of what was called Assyria back then. You can see Nineveh kind of up there at the top of that little arc. And, um, and Jonah's called to go to the Ninevites. And here's a picture of what ancient Nineveh may have, may have looked like. So it was a prosperous city, a fairly populated city. And then what's interesting is when you look at geography and, and archaeology, some places are still, they still have some ruins. So there's still some ruins in a place that's close to Mosul in Iraq that's known as modern day. This is ancient ruins of what would be called Nineveh back then. So there's some places that are still um, standing today. I even read recently that, um, that ISIS kind of destroyed some of the ruins that were in this area. So this is real places, real people, real cities, Real prophet going to a real people. And then listen to what some of their leaders would do, how, how evil they were and their depravity and cruelty. This guy's name is uh, Shalmaneser III. And some things that he would do. It's one of the cruelest empires in the ancient world. This guy wasn't just cruel, but he would celebrate his own cruelty. He would have large stone panels carved that would depict his cruelty. So they wouldn't just do cruel things. They would commission artists and say, hey, go do some artwork that depicts how cruel I am. Carve some stone and some pictures and show the world, show the, the ancient world how cruel I am as a way to intimidate people. He would torture people, dismember them, decapitate their enemies. They would cut off their enemies' legs. Listen to this. The Assyrians would... When they would invade a people, they would tell their soldiers to cut off one arm and both legs of their enemy, so they could, and they leave one arm attached, so they could shake the hand in mockery as their victim lie dying. This is how cruel they were. Just awful. Awful cruelty. They would force friends and family to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones on elevated poles. They would pull out prisoners' tongues. They would stretch their bodies with ropes. They would skin their enemies alive and display the skin on the city walls as a trophy. They would burn teenagers alive when they'd capture people. It was almost like each emperor is trying to outdo the other in how cruel they could be. And so they were all, all their leaders were like this. There was one emperor that boasted that he built a pyramid of heads in front of the city. So that's Shalmaneser III. This is a guy named Sennacherib, and he, he, wrote, he once wrote that he would cut his enemies' lives off like a string. He would, he would say their, their throats were slit like lambs. He would cut off their hands, and he would debowel them while they were still alive. They're just inventing ways they could be evil, inventing ways they could be cruel to their enemies. And then this guy... Next is uh, Ashurbanipal, I think is how you say his name. And um, this guy 
did something just really awful. There's a story that he once cut a man's chin open with a dagger and slid a rope through the guy's mouth, attached the rope to a dog chain, and put the man in a doghouse for days. These, these guys were so, so wicked. And Jonah is asked by God to go witness to these people. Imagine being a Jew during World War II and God asks you to go to Berlin and preach repentance to the Germans. You would be afraid. You would fear death. But you might fear repentance even more. Because you want these people to die and suffer and be punished by God. And you'd want God to destroy them. So you're thinking, why in the world am I going to preach so they would repent when they should just be destroyed? And this is what Jonah wants. So let's go back to the passage for a minute. Verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah could have just said, I'm not going. I'm just staying right here. But what does he do? He does the exact opposite of what God asked him to do. So instead of him just saying, I'm not going to go and just refuse, he does the exact opposite at every turn of what God told him to do. Instead of going east, he goes west. Instead of traveling over land, he goes to the sea. He's sent to the big city, and he bought a one-way ticket to the end of the world, something that Tarshish was like all the way towards Spain. He was thinking, how can I go as far away from what, God's, from what God's asked me to do as I possibly can. So not only would Jonah not have wanted to go, but it would have been dangerous for him. You see, Jonah couldn't see any good reason for this command that God is giving to him. So in his mind, there couldn't be one. Jonah can't think of a good reason for God to give this command to him. So in his limited mind, he thinks, there can't be a good reason because there's just no possible way. And I think you and I do the same exact thing in other situations because many times God seems like a contradiction to you and I. We suffer, but we can't see any good reason for it. We're in a relationship with someone that, and it ends and we can't understand why. We're told if we just believe and have faith, then our doubts are going to melt away and they don't. And so at times, God seems like a contradiction to you and I. The God of our imagination is doing battle in our hearts with the real God, and we can't make sense of it, and so you and I just start to run in the same way that Jonah did. And there's really a couple of different ways in which we run from God. And Paul, I think, highlights these. We're going to get to that in a minute in Romans. But there's two ways of running from God. The first is to reject God overtly or to reject God outright. This obvious rejection of God. This is what we mean when we say someone we love has walked away from God. This person says things like, I'm not sure I believe that anymore. I'm not sure I, I buy into that anymore. Or maybe they say they believe it, but their life no longer shows it. So this is what Paul is talking about when he writes, in Romans chapter 1, verse 29. Romans 1, 29, Paul says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, 
evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. This is what our minds jump to this. Romans 1 is what you might call the gospel for the pagan. So the person who is just in every obvious way rejecting God in our world, in our culture. There's no pretense about false belief. They don't even proclaim to believe any of it. And so our minds go here. And Romans 1.29 is talking about this kind of person. Someone who has rejected God outright. This would encapsulate how the Ninevites were living for sure. Just this obvious rejection of God. But the other way that we run from God, not as obvious, is external obedience leading to pride. And you might say, well, how is that, how is that running from God? This might not seem like running, so let me explain this to you. This is the Pharisee attitude, the prideful attitude. It's an attitude of many who grew up in the church. You see, Paul talks about this in the next chapter in, in Romans. If Romans 1 is the gospel for the pagan, then Romans 2 is the gospel for the proud. And how the gospel hits both kinds of people. And so in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, it says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. So Paul's addressing that crowd now, the prideful person. And many would look at this person and say, they've got it all together. They're spiritual. They're doing spiritual things. They're doing all the things you're supposed to do as a Christian or a believer. And on the outside, this person looks a lot different than the preferred person we described. You know, one's the rule breaker. One is a rule follower. But then here's what Paul says about both. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So there's, there's really two ways to reject God. Run from him on the outside or obey all the rules, but run from him in our hearts. And so what does that mean to run from God in our hearts? It's the person who does everything on the outside the way they're supposed to do. They obey on the outside, and it leads to pride, and that person never sees their need for a Savior. They never come to grips and understand that I really need a Savior. Because they're doing all these good things, and they think, I'm good. Me and God are good. And this is really the story of, of what Jonah was doing up to that point. It's what we see in Luke chapter 15 in the parable of the prodigal son which I never have liked the title for that story, The Prodigal Son, because it's really a story about two sons. And if you know the story of Luke 15, it's really a story that's given to the Pharisees to call out their pride. Because what happens in the story, the older son gets angry at the father's mercy on the younger son. The younger son's story is just a setup story. It's the older son that's kind of the, the, the receiver of the message to say, when the older son gets angry, that the father is showing him mercy and grace. So it really should be the, the story about the two sons. So one son runs from the father by leaving home with his inheritance. The other stays home with the father but doesn't love the father. 
And you don't see really him until the end of that story in Luke 15. Younger brother returns. Father throws a big party for him. And the older brother gets angry. And this exposes the heart of the older brother. Because the older brother in Luke 15 was really, he was obeying to get something. He was obeying to put his father in his debt. And I think this is what you and I do. We obey God so we can get something. Or like inside our hearts, this belief that if I obey God, I'm putting God into my debt. And so when God doesn't come through for us, we're angry at him. And so we're not obeying him out of love. We're doing it out of this, we want God to be indebted to us. We think God owes us something. So one writer says that this is what happens to us. The inward distancing from God that had been going on for a long time becomes an outward, obvious rejection. We become furious with God and just walk away. So what's happening with with Jonah in this story, as you'll see it play out in the coming weeks, also happens with us. And I think some of us right here, you're, you're walking through this right now. I want that quote just to sink in for a minute. Like you're, you're doing this right now. You're experiencing this right now. You're here. You might be involved, doing all the right things. But inwardly, our hearts can become distant from God. And if someone said, you know, what do you think about God? The first thing that comes to your mind in my mind isn't, Love, like I, I love him. That's not what comes to our mind. It's not what comes to my mind most of the time. I'll be honest with you. We think about behavior. We think about stuff we're supposed to do, obligation, rules. And we don't see the connection with that in love. And so what's happening with Jonah is also happening with many of us, I think. And as the pains of life begin to grow in our lives, so does our anger. And eventually we just lash out and we run away. When the whole thing just collapses, we, we run away because we can't, we can't make sense of the imaginary God and the real God. And here's the reality. The God that you have in your minds, like none of us are calling that the imaginary God, right? We don't call it that. We just think of it as God. And it makes no sense how that God fits with the God of the Bible. And so we turn and we run away from him and run from the church and run from God's people. We blame it all on him. What happens oftentimes is we encounter a situation or a circumstance And that circumstance is painful and difficult and hard on so many levels. And we look at the circumstance and think, it's the circumstance's fault. This thing happened to me. And we blame God for that circumstance. And we lash out, we run away from God. But here's the reality. If that that quote is true, I think it is. The reality is, the seeds of rebellion were growing long before the circumstance took place. The circumstance just exposed that. 
So you might say it like this. Religion without heart change is a recipe for rebellion. If you and I go on this Christian walk with this mindset of the imaginary God and we never, we never reconcile those things and we never come to understand who the real God is and it's not the God of our imagination, then we're going to never let God, the real God, change our heart. Our heart's never going to change. We're going to slap on a bunch of external stuff, good behavior stuff, and if our heart never changes, then that's going to lead towards an eventual rebellion. And if it's not going to lead to one that's external and outward and a running away in a literal sense, it's going to lead to one internally. Where you might still be here in the church. You might still be part of the church in college, young adulthood, and beyond. But inwardly, in your heart, you might be seething at him but you're just keeping it all together. But there's, there's still a rebellion happening in your heart, in our hearts. So Jonah's rebellion didn't look like the Ninevites' rebellion. It looked the exact opposite. But when God asked him to go to a people that he hated, his heart was exposed. And so my prayer is to go through this entire book of Jonah in the coming weeks. Whether you're running from God in a real external way or whether you're obeying outwardly, but there's no heart change, I hope that you'll see, just as there's two ways to run from God, God still runs after us. And I hope you'll see this, that God doesn't just run after the, after the Ninevites, he's running after Jonah in this story. And he'll do the same thing with you and I. You guys have some discussion questions at your tables. Go ahead and have your discussion here for a few minutes.